Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. I'm Father Hayden Butler. And unfortunately, we are uh, a man down today. Father Creighton had to uh, had to be at work, so we will miss him today. But it's awesome because we have a, uh, a sort of replacement for him, a recurring, now recurring guest, Danielle Hitchin of Catechesis Books. It's been a while, Danielle. I believe the last time that we talked was actually in a pre-COVID world. I think it was January 2020. Yeah, that sounds accurate. At least pre-COVID our world anyways. And uh, so, yes, it's been been too long. But how how have you been? You know, good. Um, Things at Catechesis Books have taken off like crazy since 2020, which has been really exciting. And uh, life continues to be very full in the Hitchin household. But I'm excited to be back here on The Sacramentalist today. Excellent. Excellent. Now, for those who maybe don't remember or weren't with us back then, catechesis books are an excellent resource for you to use with young children to help sort of enculturate them in the historic faith. And we have all the volumes, I think, in our house, and our boys regularly read them, so they are awesome. Well, thank you for that. It's exciting to continue to produce them and to see the work that the Lord is doing through them um, and families across the globe at this point. Yeah, wow, that's so cool. So we have you on today to talk about your new book, Sacred Seasons, a family guide to center your year around Jesus. Listeners, or I guess viewers can see the book there. It's really, really a well-done book. Um, So I guess, first of all, could you talk to us a little bit about just the purpose? What is, what is Sacred Seasons? What made you, maybe what made you write it? Yeah, so Sacred Seasons, um, as the subtitle states, is a family guide to center your year around Jesus. Basically, it's a guide um, to the church calendar or the liturgical year to help families orient all of their life and all of their time to the life of Christ. And this um, ancient spiritual discipline dates back, some could say, to the first century um, when the apostles began observing an annual resurrection celebration um, and the seeds of a Lenten season were planted in the first century as well. But basically, this was a way for the church at a time when its populace was illiterate and personal Bibles weren't even a part of the imagination um, to disciple its people into the big story of what God is doing in his kingdom from creation to second coming. And it's a beautiful way to walk through the life of Christ, to meditate on his work, life, death, and resurrection, and to think about what God is doing in the church today and to be excited about the the life of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is doing throughout the world through God's people um, and preparing them for eternity. That's that's really wonderful. I mean, your language of meditation has always been something that that I, I appreciate about your books. Uh, my children also love them. I think we have all of them, and and this one is coming as a surprise, as a gift uh, here in about a month. So I'm really looking forward to giving that one to them as well. Uh, my 
two-year-old loves like every page of the we believe alphabet book <laughs> uh, he just he, he just has them all memorized at this point which is wonderful to see that's so sweet um, and I think part of the the, the meditative um, power of, of of these books, as as I as I read them to my children, has always been the artwork as well. So, can you tell us a, a little bit about the background of of how the art comes, how how the, the design kind of um, procedure, the method, how you reflect on what kind of art to include in your books? Um, are you talking specifically about the Baby Believer series or Sacred Seasons? Because those yeah, are very no, two like different they, aesthetically. Well, I, I'd love to hear about both actually, and how they how they contrast how how they compare to each other. So, could you comment on both? Sure. So, the Baby Believer books are illustrated by a woman named Jessica Blanchard. She's an incredibly talented graphic artist, um, and she dabbles in watercolor as well, which you can see in the illustrations of those books. Sacred Seasons design was done by an artist named Stephen Crotz, who does um, like woodcut, lino cut artwork. So he actually carves the pieces of art and then stamps it onto a piece of paper. So um, two very different aesthetics. But I think what underlies both of these, um, and, and when I conceived of the Baby Believer books initially, but everything we do at Catechesis Books is that God is beautiful and Christians should produce beautiful things to reflect a beautiful God. That is part of how we are created in God's image and we are called to imitate him as creator. God creates beautifully. Christians should create beautifully as well. And um, at the time when I started producing the Baby Believer books, the artwork in children's Christian literature that was out there left something to be desired. And I just really thought, let's make a book that's gorgeous for parents and children alike to look at. And I really sought um, an artist who would be on board with that vision, who would work with care to make sure that the scripture in the books would be rendered um, in a way that was appealing to adults and children um, and was really beautiful, not <clears throat> slapdash or sentimental or um, any number of things you could use to maybe describe um, art in Christian literature from previous centuries. With um, Sacred Seasons, the process was a little bit different. So um, Jessica Blanchard and I came together as a team prior to working with Harvest House, which meant that we came as a package deal when we signed contracts with them. Compared to Sacred Seasons, where I signed a contract separate from an artist, um, Harvest House and I worked together to find Stephen. We were looking for um, a mature look that would be visually appealing, but not too busy for this book. And we really wanted people to catch a sense of the big story of what God was doing through the artwork um, and be um, just a beautiful pairing with many of the prayers and the traditions um, and the liturgies that are found in the book. No, so, I mean, there's there's so much to appreciate in that. And a follow-up question I would have is, you know, you're one of the things that I, I've always saw standing out between both of these books uh, in the, in especially in the artwork is like you said, it's not sentimentalized. It's not, it, it's not art that kind of talks down to even the youngest of children. It actually requires, um, it actually elevates them I, as, as I've experienced it. They, my, my kids just love staring at the books and there's mm -hmm. like hardly any other children's book that I can say they do that with. Um, but then also, you know, you're, it seems like there's a reversal in your books that I find so refreshing, which is that the art isn't just a kind of um, slapped together vehicle for a message, right? For a, what, what is assumed to be yes. a, verbal, a verbal message or a written message. You, you, you attend to the, the integrity of both the written message, but then also the, the visual messaging as well. Um, can you comment on just on, on, on how you kind of came about to that? Sure. So 
I, I think that the visual is so important in telling the story of what God is doing. And I mean, God could have created the world in black and white, right? Like he could have made us so that we couldn't see any color or things could be ugly or things could be bare or we could be blind. But he created us with eyes to see and he created things beautiful for us to appreciate. And I think a big part of enjoying his creation, and beauty has always been a part of the church, right? And so a big part of enjoying his creation is um, bringing the good things of God into the ways that we worship. So churches ought to be beautiful. Books about God ought to be beautiful. Um, Christian artwork ought to be beautiful. And I think that the artwork, especially in the baby believer books, because they're so scripture heavy, makes the scripture more accessible to even the youngest readers. Um, and I can think about even reading my Psalm 23 book with my my own daughter. She likes to flip back and forth. Um, this is so this was when she was like two and a half. Um, she flips back and forth between the black page, the valley of the shadow of death, and the brown page, which is the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And the first time I saw her flipping back and forth between them, um, I asked her about that and she was like, I don't want to go there. She's pointing at the dark valley. And I was like, yeah, that's scary. But you know what? <clears throat> we don't always have a choice about whether or not we get to go through the dark valley. But God says he's going to be with us wherever we go because he loves us. And she flips back to the to the brown page where the shepherd is cradling a lamb in his arms. And she goes, God loves whammy. God loves me. It's like, that's right. God walks with you in the dark valley. And so she was making this really beautiful visual connection between the dark mm. valley and the shepherd tenderly holding the sheep in his arms. Um, and I don't know that there's a better way to explain to a child the concepts of Psalm 23. Like those two pictures really captured for her the care of the good shepherd. And so that's what we really aim to do in the Baby Believer books is to make the scripture come alive for even the littlest readers. I love that. I, it reminds me of the purpose of iconography in general, which was to make the scriptures more accessible mm -hmm. to an audience that did not have the scriptural text or couldn't read the scriptural text, making the stories three-dimensional um, for them, come alive for them, um, which really is what liturgy in general with our children does, right? It teaches them to make connections between the big story and themselves, which I think is so wonderful. And I, I, I assume that most of the practices and the way you explain those practices in the book have some have come from some personal experience that you have with keeping sacred time. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the significance of keeping sacred time in your own life? How do you do it as the mother of what I am sure is a very busy, busy family? Yeah, so I um, <clears throat> I definitely give myself a lot of grace in this spiritual practice. Um, and one thing I love about the liturgical year is that it comes around again. So if we miss things one year, um, we get a chance to do them again the next year. But I have found that the church calendar is such a profound way of discipling myself and my children throughout the seasons of the church year. And they have really... Um, captured for themselves the big story of what God is doing. They love looking at our seasonal calendar and they have begun to really anticipate what's coming up next in the church year. You know, they love the Advent wreath and the waiting quietly for God. And then they love the celebration of the 12 days of Christmas um, <clears throat> and the way that that's just a time of joy and wonder um, at Christ's coming in our lives. They love our countdown to Easter with our Lenten paper chain. 
And so these things have begun to take on more and more meaning. And I found over the years that my kids are actually telling the big story of God back to me each season. As we go through these disciplines year after year, they are explaining to me things in greater detail than I ever thought they were actually absorbing. You know how kids are during devotional time. Sometimes it's great and sometimes it's like pulling teeth. Sometimes kids are running around and you have no idea which way is up. You're like, why am I even bothering with this? But in finding that this consistency year over year is really settling into their hearts and minds and teaching them the deep things of God. It's teaching them the big story of scripture. It's teaching them to look at what is God doing at work in the world, not just in my life today, but where has he been throughout time and space? Where has he been at work in his people? And how do we apply that to our lives today? Um, and these are really beautiful conversations to continue having. Like the church year isn't something you do once. You're like, check, that's good. I'm done with that. But it's the thing we continue to do year after year after year that it can build on itself you know, the church um, calendar is pictured often two-dimensionally as a circle, but I think a better um, way of describing it is as a as an upward spiral, right? These things mm. um, layer on top of each other year after year, and it's always moving us upward toward God um, with a deeper understanding of who God is and his good character and what he's doing through his people. Um so yeah, it's just been a really beautiful practice with my kids from the time they were little until now we're coming up on a 10-year-old and it's been fun to watch how these things have settled into their hearts and minds over the years. I um I work with a lot of older people like in my parish, you know, they're mm -hmm. some older. And so um you see kind of the distinction between like uh digital natives and people who weren't raised with technology, you know, in that, like, I, I'm much more proficient, I can just sit down at a computer, and I know how to use it. But it, it strikes me as kind of a similar parallel to what you're describing in terms of liturgical natives versus those of us who came to the tradition later in life, not that uh, it's useless, or that we, we don't benefit from it, but to see a child grow up in that context, from the beginning, having those tools being shepherded through appreciating the calendar, it, it seems like they are intuitively able to make connections that some of us had to go to seminary and then more grad school afterwards in order to make. Yeah, I think that's definitely accurate. I'm always surprised by the depth of the questions that my kids are asking even at, you know, four or seven or nine years old. Um, certainly not questions that I was asking at their age. So it's really exciting to see that the ways that the liturgy is shaping them, even, you know, even at their really young and tender age. I like to joke that our son Rowan has a better Eucharistic theology than most former Episcopalians. <laughs> That's, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's wonderful hearing about your family's experience of this. I think that's one of the, you know, it seems to be one of the barriers of entry for a lot of, especially young families who are entering into the church and its rhythms of life um, is, okay, how does this work when we have a kind of frantic schedule, you know, and a lot of unpredictability. Um, how does a ancient consistent rhythm of life, uh, you know, how does that inhere something that is um, difficult to, to say on any given day what's going to happen? Um, and, you know, it's from your experience, I think, that, that lends so much substance to your, your writing. Um, I, in my experience of it is, is your, your, there's, there's a difference when you read something from someone who, who knows from experience what they're what they're talking about versus someone who's who's just maybe merely studied it um and so along that line a question i had was uh, you, so you organize this book into two parts and the first part is called in his time and it functions as a as an apologetic it seems like for uh, and an invitation for keeping the church calendar um so 
I wanted to ask, what are some things you might say to someone who views the church calendar as maybe a little strange or inconvenient, or maybe just a thing that Roman Catholics are supposed to do? Um, and what, what do you hope to impart by teaching others how to live in the rhythm of the church calendar? Yeah, so to answer your first question, I would say that I used to be one of those people. Um, <clears throat> I grew up non-denom, evangelical. My parents are lapsed Roman Catholic, turned Baptist. So there was a lot of baggage there when it came to um, liturgy and liturgical living. And um, <clears throat> I discovered the liturgy, I discovered, I use that in quotes, um, the liturgy in college and just thought, wow, this is so beautiful. Um, and so the first part of my book aims to perhaps convince the liturgically curious about why the church calendar and spiritual disciplines, ancient spiritual disciplines, are worth incorporating into your life and your discipleship. And um, I think there's just a lot of misunderstanding about spiritual disciplines and about liturgy. Um, certainly, I had a lot of misunderstandings when I sort of entered into this world. Um, so part of what I aim to do in the book is clear up a little bit of this. And one thing I want to be really clear about is none of these things are necessary for salvation, but they are all ways to pursue sanctification, to invite the spirit into our lives, into our homes, and um, ask the Lord to be at work in us, forming us into disciples. Um, I'm sorry, I'm totally blanking on the second part of your question there. <laughs> no, that, that's 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 more than fine. Uh, so th there's a so, so that, that addresses maybe this, the those who might find it a bit strange. And, and mm -hmm. I, uh, I'm equally curious about how you know you might um, counsel someone who may find the idea of adopting this rhythm of life um, maybe inconvenient, or maybe mm -hmm. you know coming from your own background, um, something that maybe they have some suspicion over because it, it comes from a a kind of tradition, a Christian tradition that they may have either heard, you know, ha, you know, is problematic for some reason, or that they they just are unfamiliar with, and and as a result are a little bit wary of. Um, and then also just kind of what, what it, you know, those are those are the kind of misgivings that you might address, the inconvenience or the strangeness of it, or the mm -hmm. or rather that like the suspicious nature of it, like is it yes. going to make us legalistic for some reason? So what, would, what how would you might counsel someone on that? Well, I would say that the <clears throat> the church year is not um, an all or nothing practice. So I would say, feel free to try out a traditional Advent one year followed by 12 days of Christmas and see what you think. That's like a 30-day commitment, maybe a 35-day commitment if I counted um, <clears throat> all the days of Christmas and if Advent was extra long, right? Like that's not a big chunk of your year. It's barely a month and see how it goes. Um, and I suspect that anybody who starts trying out different aspects of the church year will find that it's actually a really wonderful way to orient your time to the life of Christ. And instead of feeling like you're jamming church into your life on Sundays or jamming Christianity into a full life during the week, you are actually orienting your time around God and allowing your life to be formed by the life of Christ rather than trying to jam the life of Christ into your own life. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I think partaking of God's big story through the liturgy is one of the most powerful ways to understand our own smallness and God's largeness um, and really his, his character and his will for his people. 
Um, it is strange though, if you've never done it before, it might feel really awkward and weird and <clears throat> that's okay. There's actually nothing wrong with that. Awkward and weirdness is not a sin. Um, inconvenience is also not a sin. And parts of the church year are really inconvenient. I don't always want to sit down on Candlemas and make candles with my kids, but that's an important <laughs> part of finishing up our Christmas season and they love it. They love making candles together. And we read the story of, um, <clears throat> excuse me of Jesus's presentation in the temple and Simeon's beautiful prayer. And it's always a sweet time. I never regret taking the extra time to do these things, to make candles with my kids or to make crepes on Candlemas or to make waffles for the Annunciation. <laughs> and like, you know, there's just some fun things that really um, are delightful family traditions at this point, in addition to meaningful ways that we have touch points with God's big story in our lives. So there's there's also, you know, as you pointed out, there's sometimes we, we're not feeling it, right? You know, mm -hmm. and there, there's times when our, our our kind of subjective experience of a beautiful church season doesn't always, you know, sort of experience the full joy of that season or the full, even the full penitence of a, of a, of a, of a preparatory season. Um, but also there's, there's, you know, I, I've observed, you know, in one of the things we talk about, a lot about in our parishes, the kind of practical matters of of living in a world that doesn't observe this rhythm of life. And particularly we have one coming up where that seems to be thrown into the most, you know, kind of contrast, which is Advent, which mm -hmm. for us is a penitential and preparatory season. But as soon as like Thanksgiving is, is, is packed up in Tupperware, it's like Christmas time has started. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, until Christmas Day, which by mid-afternoon, it's Christmas is over now. And now it's, you know, whatever <laughs> comes next, the, the the weirdness of New Year's Day. Um, you know, as you as you sort of observe that in your family and as you talk to other people about this, uh, what, you know, words of, a, of wisdom might you give to someone who says, oh, well, am I supposed to just not go to any Christmas parties during Advent or <laughs> things like that? What would be your, your sort of godly admonition there? You know, um, I don't think it's good for anybody to be a Grinch. So <laughs> I, I would say, you know, like enjoy the things you can during Advent outside the home. If there's Christmas parties at school or at the office or whatnot, like feel free to enjoy those. But I feel like your home can be a haven from that like holiday hysteria. I'm really big on getting Christmas shopping done before Advent starts so that I don't have to be at a mall um, or anywhere else commercialized during the Advent season. Um, and just trying to take it more slow at home. We don't put the tree up the day after Thanksgiving, or if we do, we don't light it until St. Lucy's Day. Um, we decorate slowly. We just try to take things a little bit slower because the world is all about getting us to the next thing and going really fast to the next thing. And um, that's really stressful. I don't know. The pace of life um, that's wrought by consumerism is just, it's too much. Um so I would say just making your home a haven during Advent is one of the best things that you can do for your own spiritual well-being and to build your own anticipation of Christmas. Um, luckily, inviting people into 12 days of Christmas is a lot easier than inviting them into, um, you know, four weeks of penitence. So I think that um, it's a great time for Christians to be countercultural to celebrate from December 25th all the way until, you know, January 5th or 6th. Um, who doesn't love an epiphany party, right? Who doesn't enjoy um, a big party for New Year's that you can call, you know, Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus party. It's also New Year's, but we can enjoy both, right? Um, 
So I, I think carols after Christmas, people still enjoy and Christmas cookies after Christmas, people still enjoy. So hopefully both seasons offer us an opportunity to be countercultural, to invite our neighbors into something new and to something beautiful. Um, and I hope the, the whole church year feels that way for Christians. I mean, it can be a little bit challenging, but I think Christians also have the best reasons to party of anybody else, you know, any other people group, the church year always has a reason for making treats and for inviting people in and practicing hospitality. Um, and nobody hates those things, right? Non-Christian neighbors or Christians who don't practice the liturgical year, who doesn't like being invited over for, you know, a cake or a soft pretzel or whatever the seasonal treat happens to be. So after you establish this kind of apologetic for using the church calendar, you you dive in in the second section of the book into the actual calendar itself, and you you divide the church year into kind of two cycles, cycle of light and cycle mm -hmm. of life. Could you tell us a little bit about that division? Because even some people who use the church calendar may be slightly unfamiliar with that terminology, but what do we mean by those cycles? Yeah, so the church year um, has roughly six seasons. It has Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, and then it has Lent, Easter and ordinary time. And for each of those cycles, um, they run in seasons of preparation, celebration, and proclamation. So Advent, um, Christmas, and Epiphany are the cycle of light, which was God um, with us. And then um, Lent, Easter, and ordinary time is the cycle of life, which is God for us. So um, the preparatory cycles in each of, or preparatory seasons in each of those cycles are Advent and Lent. The celebratory seasons are Christmas and Easter. And then the um, proclamation seasons are <clears throat> Epiphany and Ordinary Time. And I think that's just a nice clear rubric for understanding um, how the church year was sort of built. Um, it allows us to get ready for a big thing that's happening in Jesus's life to celebrate the big thing, whether that's his birth or his resurrection, and then to be the church, to go out and proclaim the good news of the gospel, um, the good news of Jesus's birth, the good news of his resurrection to the world um, in those in those proclamation seasons. I really like the way that you do that and the sort of symmetry of the calendar because ordinary time is so long and it it is so, and I think in a lot of people's minds, disconnected from the rest of the calendar that it feels mm -hmm. like this sort of unnecessary gangly uh, vestige, <laughs> you know, that it doesn't really have like a, a larger purpose, but it really does. It's really an important season. And, um, and so I, I think that's a helpful framing of it so that people can better appreciate what's going on in ordinary time. It's not just that the church calendar designers had nothing to do with in during those months. Yes, that's accurate. And one thing I love is that the church calendar doesn't go from um, Pentecost into like reliving the days of the early church. It jumps from um, Pentecost into what is God doing in our own time and place? How is he growing his people? How is he growing in, in you? And um, I just love ordinary time as the green season, the time of the life of the Holy Spirit in the church. I think that's a really wonderful way of thinking about um, where God is at work in the world today. So also, you know, it seems like the way in your book that you invite people into this, um, because this book is intensely practical too, um, is through these liturgies that you've included in your book for these various seasons. 
um, it's a way it, it, it's wonderful how you take people from the idea of the of Christian time which uh, there's a lot of ink written you know spilled on that but you're actually um, giving people practical ways to engage it through these um, liturgies um, so can you could you explain uh, just a little bit about what these liturgies are in your book and uh, and how do you envision families using them Sure. So the liturgies are basically a structure for family prayer time. Um, it's a time to gather our intentions um, and to think about the themes of the season that we're in. So for Advent, there's readings for the first four Sundays of Advent, or the only four Sundays of Advent, I should say. Um, and they're roughly pulled from the traditional lectionary. So themes about the eschaton and about John the Baptist um, before we move into you know, verses about Jesus's coming um, and angelic proclamations. And um, they're supposed to just help families gather together to be intentional about understanding what each season is about and to have a, a clear way to spend some time in prayer and focusing their lives on God for each individual season. For most of the liturgies, I only include readings for um, the particular Sundays in that season. There are very few seasons where I include daily readings. Um, and so I know families have other things that they want to do, or they could substitute readings um, from storybook Bibles or whatnot. Um, but I wanted to include liturgies that had several of the traditional elements of each season, whether that's, um, you know, specific prayers that are seasonal or antiphons. Um, I wanted to include the, the litany of saints for All Saints Day, but I don't think that actually made it into the book. But it's just little things like that where I was hoping that families could catch a glimpse of how the church has traditionally celebrated each of these seasons, prayed through each of these seasons, read through each of these seasons, um, so that families could know a little bit more about how the church has historically thought about this time. Excellent. Well, as we as we kind of come to a close, I, I just wanted to really commend you for um, something. I think when it comes to to books, especially books geared towards family and children, you know, there are these kind of two poles that we should avoid. One is making the tradition so inaccessible by neglecting um, to teach, explain, and shepherd people through things like the calendar and the liturgy. And that's, of course, been the story, I think, for a lot of mainline and Catholic churches uh, over the past century, you know, has just been a total lack of catechesis. But on the other hand, there's a tendency that's become really popular, I think, in, in much of American Anglicanism to radically change the tradition by catering to the lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. And these attempts to make tradition more accessible actually often eviscerate the tradition itself <laughs> rather than preserve it. So they create something new, usually less, less good. But your book, and all, well, all your books, but especially this book does, I think, a really excellent job of navigating the thin margin between those two extremes. Like there are some I, I, I just think that's really important that it's not over accommodating, but it's also not dumbing down. And, and, and it, it's just excellent. So thank you so much for your work. Well, thank I, you. We plan, on, we, we plan on uh, implementing a number of these, uh, not only in the house, but also in the parish. So, um, yeah, it's a great gift to the church. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you're finding it to be a useful resource. I really set out to make a useful book because as a mom, I've picked up a number of books. Where I'm like, well, this this sounds great, but I have no idea how to do this, you know? And so I'm, I'm glad to know that this book makes that a little bit more accessible to families. And um, yeah, I just pray that it's, that it's a gift to the church, um, not only the Anglican church, but the church at large. Um, and I hope they catch a glimpse of, of where God is at work and what he is doing and his people.
I, uh, I had an epiphany too, that, you know, if, if families want to buy this book um, and do it as a family, that'd be great. And another book they could buy to kind of pair with it is the book drinking with the saints for after the kids go to bed. That one's a lot of fun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the church calendar after dark. Yes. Hey, I did include hot buttered rum. You did. Um, and there's a, thing about this book. there's a thing about wine, I think on the feast of St. John too, but yes, the blessing over yes. the wine and stuff. Yeah. Yes. So. <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, one of the ways we always end every episode is we talk about something that we're into lately. Uh, it could be a book, movie, experience, anything. Uh, so, Danielle, as our guest, what are you into these days? Oh, goodness. Um, we have been in a really busy season, so I haven't been into too much of anything, to be perfectly honest. At the end of the day, I want to watch New Girl again. Because yes. It's funny and it makes me laugh every single night. So um, I'd love to know what you guys are into. Father Hayden, what are you into? Well, uh, as of late, we've been, uh, we, I, I think we spoke in our last episode that we were, we're catching up on some of the, uh, the, the new Star Wars content that's available mm. out there. Um, that's been fun. Uh, and then uh, we, uh, Christy and I are rewatching uh, Andor right now, which uh, is, is a is one of these ones that just stands out and we we just got to the uh, to the the part in it where you know the illustrious andy circus emerges out of nowhere and, and plays one of the like just this show stealing part in this uh in this mini series so uh we're having a good time with that um uh other than that uh we are uh, we're still um we we've discovered that uh that as we have been clearing out this, you know, feral ivy from our backyard, which I think I mentioned a couple episodes ago, that we had to, uh, that that uh, we found a bunch of like sort of volunteer trees that had just been stumped but not removed. And so uh, we have stump day coming up this weekend, uh, which is going to, which is a, a fun day of, you know, of, of proving, you know, prowess and one of the few ways still accessible to, uh, to modern man. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, digging up a stump this weekend. I was going to say, that sounds like a great day to be sick to me. <laughs> there's, there's few opportunities to have such, some, such concrete results for one's labor, That's especially true. in our profession. And so I, you gotta, you gotta seize the moment. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Well, I guess, Father Wes. yeah, I guess for me, uh, a couple things, um, NBA season started last night. I watched my New York Knicks get just barely beat by the Boston Celtics, which was not super fun. Um, so, you know, I guess I just pick sports teams on the fact that I hate myself. Um, <laughs> that's the only way to explain it. But the other thing I've been into is I, I picked up to revisit for some research that I'm doing on Mariology in the Middle Ages, I picked up Anselm's on the Virgin Conception and Original Sin mm -hmm. recently, which is um, a short read. I mean, it's dense like most of Anselm, but uh, I really do appreciate uh, his perspective and way of explaining things. I think he was such a, a brilliant mind and and he's worth reading it. You know, people, everyone's read Proslogion and Perdeus Homo, but uh, some of his other works uh, are are just as interesting and, and deserve just as much attention, but they rarely get it. So that is what I have been into on the Virgin Conception and Original Sin. His his prayers are particularly uh, beautiful. Uh, I remember Father Greg Peters, uh, he's the one who turned me on to the collection of his his prayers and meditations, and they're just they're, they're astonishing. Yeah, they're, he has. I, I want to do something with it at some point because I my parish is St. Paul's and I, he has got like a 16 page prayer to St. Paul that yeah. is really beautiful. And and you just don't see a lot of piety towards St. Paul that like that um, in the modern church. And I, I 
I don't know what I want to do, but maybe get it like uh, integrated into a, an artwork or something, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I think would be really cool. Um, but it's such a good, he's such a good writer of prayers for sure. For sure. Uh, Danielle, where's the best people, the best, the best place for people to buy your book? You can get my books basically anywhere books are sold. So if okay. you want to buy them on Amazon, great. Um, my own website is catechesisbooks.com and you can buy all my books there along with some other um, sort of ancillary products, art, calendars, etc. Um, so yeah, and you can follow me on Instagram at catechesisbooks. Excellent. Excellent. Any other projects upcoming that you're excited about? So there's a new Baby Believer book coming out in the spring, but I can't talk too much about that yet. Um, Otherwise, nope, mostly just taking a break, trying to catch my breath after the last couple of years of producing at a pretty, pretty fast clip. Sure. Okay. Well, we'll have to have you back in the spring then. That'd be great. Excellent. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Um, like and subscribe on YouTube and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. You can also join the communion of Patreon saints over at Patreon for $5 a month. Uh, Father Hayden, would you read Occupy Our Calendars by Walter Brueggemann, which is found on page 11 of the Sacred Seasons? I'd be happy to. Let us pray. Lord, our times are in your hands, but we count our times for us. We count our days and fill them with us. We count our weeks and fill them with our busyness. We count our years and fill them with our fears. And then, caught up short with your claim, our times are in your hands. Take our times, times of love and times of weariness. Take them all, bless them and break them. Give them to us again, slow-paced and eager, fixed in your readiness for neighbor. Occupy our calendars. Flood us with itsy-bitsy daily Cairo in the name of your blessed Kairos. Amen. Amen.